0: Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than a living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind.
1: I had a conversation a while back with a woman who worked for a tenured professor at a major university. And she shared a story that I remember Um, which seems to to be embedded in the fact that this uh, professor was quite established and respected in her field. But in the same department, there was another professor who was also established and respected in the field, but was also popular outside of the field. (laughs) This other professor's work um, was getting noticed in a more popular level. And it seemed that Though uh, the 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 scholar that the person I spoke to worked with um, was quite accomplished and respected, there was something that troubled her about that reality. and And the story that I remember is that she started to feel that she wasn't appreciated, and that this other scholar had a much larger office. So she made a case to the university: um, if if he has that kind of office, uh, I should have a similar office since we're We're both at a similar level within our institution. And the university wanted to keep her, uh, complied, but they didn't have office space within that building. And so they found office space somewhere else. And what was very important is that she would have at least the same square footage. And so they really wanted to to comply with that. Uh, They got her another office. And after she moved into the office, she had a realization that in the other building, the ceilings were 12 feet. And in the new building, the ceilings were nine feet. And what that meant is while they had the same square foot, the other professor had more cubic feet of office. (laughs) Now, how would that make a difference in doing your job? How does that communicate your value? Um, Would you say that envy is the problem there? And and I don't know, It, it doesn't seem like, well, you're not envying the office because really who cares? But I think envy is at work because you don't envy the office, but you, you envy the success and the esteem. And you want something, some marker to show that in comparison, you're equally valued. Um, envy can be a little bit more subtle than sometimes we're aware of. We, we, we may know when we're feeling envious, but sometimes envy is at work under the radar and it's driving our decisions, our thoughts, our feelings. And the inside of the passage that we're focusing on today is in verse four, where the writer of Ecclesiastes, this, or, or the figure that we're hearing, Koheleth is what we call him, uh, says, then I saw all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Envy is a driving force. And, and he's not saying that it's the only driving force, but he makes this bold statement to say, in everything that we do, <laughs> um, Envy has worked its way in. What motivates us to work harder and to be better and to be stronger? Well, there should be all sorts of good and virtuous things, but, but somehow there's this corrupting reality that comes in. And what it does is it, it changes our experience and it affects the outcomes. And it's ruinous because envy turns us against others. It stirs dissatisfaction, it alienates. And so all of us struggle with envy. And, and it's quite a problem. Because you may find that in your own life, um, at times where you're wanting to, to be a supportive friend, and you're finding that, that in your own life, there's something that's lacking, and there's a dissatisfaction and an impatience. And then your friend, somebody that you care for, somebody who you love, um, winds up getting that thing, whatever it is. For each of us, it's different, but some of you immediately will know what that is, or with some reflection, what is it that you want? And without having, discourages you. Where do you feel a bit of resentment? Where is there an impatience? Well, when your friend gets that, it creates a problem because we know that our response should be joy. I'm so happy for you. And and we most likely are to some degree, but but sometimes the emotional response, the reality is that even while we, we truly feel happy or we know we should feel happy, the more dominant feelings are, are envious. There's a sense of, of your success makes me feel like I'm not good enough or there's a, a sadness at you're getting that. Why am I sad? Am I, am I resentful of you? Not at all. But my sadness about you're getting that is a reminder that I'm not. Um, And that's troubling because not only does it create a rift between us and our friend who may read into a a fake kind of enthusiasm, but we're left with our own thoughts knowing that's not right. If I was really a friend, I should be happy for them. And now compounded with what's lacking is the guilt for not being a good enough person. So not only am I lacking this thing, but I can't even be a friend because I'm resentful. And envy works uh, that way And, and often in ways that we're aware of. Um, but I think the insight of this particular verse is that envy is, has much deeper roots. What is it that's really driving us? And, and if we understand things, envy is actually a much bigger problem. It's not just an occasional thing that comes up touching in areas of dissatisfaction, uh, but it's something that fuels even our ambitions. Ambition is good. But the envy is not. And so you you take the kinds of uh, or here's a scenario of how envy works. In a lot of places, having a nice car uh, in Manhattan, it's not so much in Manhattan. Envy looks like, wow, uh, you live in a 750 square foot apartment and there's only three of you in here. You know, is this rent stabilized? Is one of your parents rich? That's what Manhattan envy looks like. Uh, That's not what the rest of the the country uh, looks like. We tend not to have cars, but there's still something about a beautiful car where where when somebody has it, we. We desire it, not everybody, but, but substitute car for something uh, that, that works that way for you. For a lot of people, a fancy car, you see somebody with it and the thought is, I wish I had that. Now, why do you wish you have it? Well, why do you envy that? And you realize, well, well, to me, the car represents something. And in your reflection, you could figure out what you're envious of. A, a popular answer or, or a typical answer would be uh, a car represents status, a fancy car in whatever form. Uh, represents some sort of status. If I had that car, people might think I was an important person. They might think I make a lot of money. Um, There's something about that car that communicates something. And so, so when you envy somebody with a fancy car, you can easily figure out with some reflection, why do I envy that person? It's not the car that I want. It's the status that I want. But the thing is, because other people want the car for status, if you want status, you'll look to the car as well. Now, if other people said, actually, we don't care about cars and you want status, you're not gonna envy the person with the car, you'll envy somebody else. And so you you could trace that back. Why do I want the car? I don't want the car, I want the status. But here's the deeper question. Why do you want the status? And that's the level that we don't go much deeper than because the car, obviously I want that because because people see it as as a symbol of status. I want status, the car would be a means to get it. But why do I want status? I just do. That's the way I'm made. That's my desire. But is it actually any different? If everyone wants the car, you want the car. But if everyone wants status, then you want status as well. And depending on who you're hanging out with, depending on what you're reading, depending on where you're engaged, we find that our desires themselves are not original. It's not that we have these basic desires, but our, our desires are being shaped by the world around us And the world around us um, is very happy to be encouraging and building up one another until the resources get narrowed and and then we're in competition with one another. And therefore, envy is going to make its way deep into our lives because we want what other people have. But more than that, we want what other people want. And therefore, uh, we have a deep envy problem that turns us against one another. And this creates problems. It creates problems between people where you can't celebrate with your friends, where you sabotage others, but it creates problems of you as an individual because envy alienates and then you're left alone with your own dissatisfaction and envious thoughts. This is something we need to address. And so what I want to talk about this morning is how envy is a problem, but I want to move us towards how God will help us with it. And so where I want to begin is, is what I'm calling envy expressed. Envy expressed most of you know that, that, that envy functions at a certain level in your life. What, what the Bible in this verse highlights is it's, it's, it's functioning much more deeply. It's much more pervasive and embedded in your life than you realize it. And eventually it's going to come out. Now it'll come out emotionally, but it's going to come out in your actions and your decisions. And that affects things negatively. So the opening verses talk about oppression. And now, um, the explanation for the oppression is not necessarily, there's a number of things happening in chapter four. Um, but this verse saying, envy drives all of our work. If you if you share that assumption, then you can see how his discouragement in his observation of oppression, which comes up here and multiple times in this particular book, um, is a concern for, for how human beings in their envy turn against one another. And therefore some people to, to chase Success, as they define it, uh, to, accept, to excel or to deal with their resentments, harm other people. And it's overwhelming for him. So in verse one, he says, I saw all the oppression, all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. These days, we talk a lot about power, um, and yet in our talking about it, what, what it really is is... We all want it for ourselves. And so in this in this picture of oppressed and oppressor, uh, this is a context that, that we create over and over again. And and this this refrain, they had no one to comfort them. The oppressor, what did they have? Tears. And there's no one to comfort them. Because the oppressed um, need to keep them in that position to hold on to their power. And where I grappled a little bit with, with trying to make sense of this. This particular verse this week you know there's the repeat and there was no one to comfort them and and you know it doesn't say who the them is but but you you'd assume it's the oppressors and there's something of a lament you know there was the on the oppressors had tears and there was no one to comfort them and on the uh, the oppressed and on the side of the oppressor there was power and there was no one to comfort them the oppressed uh, that repetition feels like a lament what I couldn't help but wondering this week, though, is, is in those parallels, uh, could you read this verse to say, on the one hand, there's the oppressed who have tears and there's no one to comfort them. But on the other side, there's the oppressor who has power and there's no one to comfort them. And I don't know that this, uh, that Koheleth writing this meant that. It's, it's not clear to me who the them are, but, but I think that's true given what he says otherwise. That's, that's the trap of envy. We think, if I have the power, I don't care if those without the power are suffering. What do they have? They have tears, and there's no one to comfort them. But if I have the power, I won't need anyone to comfort me. And you read through Ecclesiastes, and he's saying, but I'm seeing people that have success, and they have pleasure, and they have wealth. And, and if it's not meant in this verse, what he's saying in the book is, but there's no one to comfort them. They, they're chasing wind. There's no satisfaction. And this is the problem of envy. It creates a win-lose situation where where the winner also finds himself to be a loser. And it's that troubling perspective that plays itself out. So so verses 7 and 8 are not about oppression, but it's the same envy that drives us. And so he says, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, neither son or brother, And yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure. This also is vanity in an unhappy business. He's reflecting on the unhappy business of humanity and it's everywhere. And he sees it where some are are excelling at the expense of others. But here's an example of, of a guy that maybe he's doing this honorably. He's not intending to oppress others, but he himself is oppressed by his own drivenness it makes no sense. And so so one of the themes of of Ecclesiastes is what gain is there for all the toil? What are you getting over time? And verses seven and eight talk about a person who doesn't have heirs. He doesn't need to provide for anyone. And so he's gaining and it should be enough, but there's no satisfaction. There's no pleasure. There's something that makes him keep working harder the more he gets, even though it makes no sense. What is it? Well, he sees that that envy is driving everyone's toil. You have enough for yourself, but instead of being satisfied, you see that others have more. But who cares if others have more? You have enough for yourself. And it's the foolishness of humanity that that drives us, that, that that drive of envy leads to the tears of some with no one to comfort them. But the inside of Ecclesiastes is, and it leads to the emptiness of others with no one to comfort them. So envy will work its way into all of our lives. And we need to be very careful. Uh, One of the ancient writers, a a guy named Cyprian of Carthage, reflecting on envy, he, he writes this. He says, what a gnawing worm of the soul it is to envy someone for his virtue or for his happiness, to make others good into our own evil, to be tortured by the prosperity of the famous, to the envious, no food brings joy, no drink is cheerful. They're always sighing, groaning and weeping. And since the envious never set their envy aside, the heart possessed by envy is ripped apart by day and night without a pause. Um, This is the problem if we're allowing envy to to stay rooted in our hearts. If we don't trace it down and find out what's going on, why am I caught up in this? Uh, We're gonna wind up being those who either are tearful because we envy those with power Or we seek after power with such fervor and skill that we attain it. And we find that not only have we harmed others, but we're not satisfied. Um, And so for for Koheleth, who reads this in verses two and three, he says, I thought the dead who were already dead far more fortunate than the living who were still alive. Better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Uh, What a work of despair that he sees oppression. And he sees suffering, and it overwhelms him with grief. And in that grief, he's he's grappling with this, um, and and he says what many people feel, which is, uh, which is, I would rather not be alive to endure this suffering. But he takes it a step further. <laughs> but better than not having endured it all, and then and then having it behind you, would be never to have seen it, to be spared this. He's so troubled by what the, what's in the human heart and how it expresses itself. And so we, we need to see how envy expresses itself so that we take seriously uh, not to allow envy to be a driving force in our lives. So I want to talk next about um, envy reduced. How do we, how do we remove, or, or, or I should say, how do we minimize envy and its influence and effect in our lives? So we, one thing is we see the destructive nature in our envy. Um, it's, it's harming others. It's harming our relationships. It isolates us and it leaves us unsatisfied and it never goes away. The more we envy, it doesn't matter how much we gain. Uh, no matter what we're gaining, the envy grows with it. And so there's no satisfaction. So one thing is to see that, but we get a vision for an alternative. So in verses nine to 12, we find a picture of, of what is a life that's not alienated? What is a life where you're not turning against people, where you're not putting others down, where you're not seizing power so that others could cry, nor are you crying because others have power. But but what happens when when we're seeking to build one another up? And so in verse nine, he says, two are better than one. Now, keep in mind, he's, uh, you know, there are, there are these different sections in, in, in Ecclesiastes 4, and the theme of the chapter is not envy. But because envy is so per- pervasive, you could see how it holds things together, that that first you have these sides within society of oppressed and oppressor. Then you have this isolated human being who's driving himself crazy for no reason because he's keeping up with people he shouldn't be competing with. Um, but but now you have a different vision. Two are better than one. Two who are cooperating, who are, who are building one another up rather than tearing each other down. And what's interesting is verse 9 says two are better than one. Why? Because they have a good reward for their toil. And if you've been tracking with the theology or, or, or particularly the problem in Ecclesiastes, that's, that's quite, it's saying something because his, his problem is what gain is there for all this toil? He's looking at the cycles of history and whatever we build up gets torn down. And is there any gain? Is, is this hard work and toil worth it? And now he says, well, when we're not isolated, when we're not driven by envy, when we come together, then there's a reward for our toil. Actually, there's something that hints at hope. Now, he's not this super optimistic guy, but there's a hint there that actually there is some gain for our toil. But it comes not through the envy that drives all of us, but it it comes through to putting the envy aside and having something else drive us. So in verse 10, he gives a description of why the two are better. He says, if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. What a difference between the one who is pushing his fellow down in order to lift himself up. That's the problem of oppression. But if one falls, his fellow will lift him up. Um, We don't necessarily want to get bogged down helping others when we're trying to go ahead, but in our own failure, when we've been in that driven mindset, it's hard for friends to encourage us because we're suspicious. (laughs) I know my own heart. What if my friends are like me? I would resent me. And now I'm stuck unable to be somebody who's helped because I'm not really with this person because envy has alienated us. There's a different vision. If one falls, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who's alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Humiliation is what happens where envy is at work in our hearts and in our relationships. Verse 11, again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? This is just a very practical image. But, but I think coldness is probably the emotion that we associate with alienation, with somebody who's envious and, and distant or somebody who's arrogant. There's no warmth in our lives. And so what happens when we're envious, when we act on it, when we're in um, social circles with other people that are putting each other down, we wind up alone, we wind up alienated, we wind up cold. I don't know that that's what he's getting at here, but I think this image of warmth of two coming together there's something about humanity that when, when we're with one another, it, it brings the warmth out into one another's lives. And so we're better off. And so verse 12, though a man may prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And so if we want comfort and security, if we want a reward, the very basic things we want in life, the vision in the Bible that, that he t- ties into is, well, you get this not by turning against people, not by envying them. Um, But by laying aside your ego and your envy and starting to love your neighbor instead of envying your neighbor, you seek the good of your neighbor and you realize that my good is tied to the good of my neighbor, which is not to say when you do them good, they'll always thank you and reward you for it. If you lay your life down for them, that doesn't mean they'll lay their life down for you. But you realize there's a better way to live. Envy is always destructive. Laying down your life for others doesn't always bring about the reward that you want, but it is always the right way. It's always the way in God's view that leads to reward. It's the only way that does. And so this threefold cord is not quickly broken. You have the two who come together. Uh, And and of course, you know, theologically we would say, well, what's that third strand? Uh, And that of course is where we don't simply reduce our envy, but we start to deal with getting rid of our envy. But before we jump to that next point, just to point out here, how, how, do you, how do you work to reduce your envy? Um, you need to be aware that it's pervasive, that, that you're getting caught up in the dreams of others. Sometimes you stop and say, why, why am I killing myself for this thing? I don't, I don't even know if I want it. <laughs> you know, I'm running after these things that everybody loves. But to be honest, you know, here I'm in this fancy place eating this food, and I'd rather be eating French fries. But I don't want to admit that because I envy the status and this. And so you, so you wind up making all these decisions about a life that's not suited for you. At some point you stop and say, why is everybody, else, uh, why is everybody else's goals and desires uh, catching me up and making me miserable? And, and that creates misery. It creates a society where we're, where, where we're fake. And they, you know, they talk these days about how teenagers, the, the effect of social media. Um, we get caught up in the dreams of others and we get anxious and depressed that we'll never live up to that. Part of it is like, well, what is that? Why do I want to live up to it? Just because everyone's liking that doesn't mean I should. We know this, and yet we're still caught up in it. One thing is to realize it's destructive. The other thing is to have a vision for a better way, to say, you know what, I don't need to constantly put others down, and I don't need to constantly be stuck feeling bad about myself, but I can move towards others. And if I live that way rather than out of envy, it will be better for me, it will be better for for others, and I'll prevail. So that's a better way that that removes it, but it's always a struggle. If there's any hope uh, or it reduces it, I keep going ahead. If there's any hope in removing it, it's that third strand. Uh, So if one strand is you and the second strand is your neighbor, there's a third strand. And that's why the Bible says that, that when you understand God's ways, the fulfillment of all he wants is the love of God and the love of neighbor. And so don't envy your neighbor, love your neighbor, but don't envy God, love God. In a society, we have religious people who love God, but, but wind up envying their neighbor. In a secular society, we have people that love their neighbor, but wind up envying and rejecting God. It hangs together. And we can't create space in our lives for, for envy's roots to remain, but, but God can take them out. And so, so that's the last thing I wanna talk about. How do we remove this envy? How do we get the roots out? Obviously, we need to be patient. It's a lifelong of sanctification. But what's offered to us is another way that we don't need to be stuck in this uh, cycle of the only thing motivating and driving us is to keep up with others, to have their dreams become our dreams. Um, But there's a a reframing. And so this passage is helpful because it it shows us the ways that we would normally go. And so if if my desire for what others desire is the problem, we think the, the solution is to have no desires. And so if I could get rid of my envy and if I could get rid of all my desire, then I will be out of this loop. But you'll also be out of the loop of being satisfied because human beings are supposed to desire things. We're just not supposed to desire them idolatrously. We're not supposed to envy. And so verse five is helpful because there's this brief proverb, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. What happens to the person who wants nothing? Well, they just waste away. And so, so this problem with envy is it's not about competition or ambition or goals or hard work or any of these other things. Uh, Christians are to be invested in those things. We're to, to make the most of life, but we're not supposed to do so out of envy. And so, so to have no envy, but to have no drive is not good. Then we have nothing. So we fold our, 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 our hands and we're, you know, the picture is almost like you're too lazy to get up and go to the refrigerator and eat something. So you just eat your own flesh. That's not the alternative, but neither is the alternative. Verse six, better a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. The word quietness there can also be translated rest. Better to have a handful of rest. And then think about the, the next verses of the one person who has no rest. He has no enjoyment because he's look. he has two handfuls of toil. He doesn't need two handfuls. He needs one. He doesn't have anybody else he needs to provide for, but he's filling the other hand. And what we've been reading in Ecclesiastes, the last couple of chapters, in all of the despair, they're the occasional verses, but God gives joy. <laughs> and you have two hands full of toil and God offers it and you have nothing to take hold of it with. So this is saying better a handful of rest, of quietness, <laughs> better to receive good from the Lord and then to be driven. And, and if you have enough, let other people have more. But don't sit back and do nothing and have nothing for yourself, but, but rest in the Lord. And, and take what he gives you and then go and take what what the world offers and, and be driven but but don't let it be envy that's driving you so so how do we get out of this and so so verse four well let's return to where we began and I saw all the toil and skill in work come from a man envy man's envy of his neighbor now I've been saying that um that that we want to read Ecclesiastes in the context of the broader story of the Bible. So that that way we can make sense of where it's going and how how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the unanswered questions in Ecclesiastes, but also the trajectory from the beginning. And the whole Bible before it, preceding it, helps shape this story. But the opening chapters of Genesis, I think, are are really there. Think about uh, um, what was alluded to earlier in the service, as we heard the words, it's not good for man to be alone, Genesis 2. And here's a passage saying it's better, two are better than one. You see those Genesis creation themes all over Ecclesiastes. Um, but what I've been saying is the story of Cain and Abel tends to be underplayed. It's significance in the Bible. People think it's it's just another story, and yet and yet it has echoes of Adam and Eve and the serpent. And it's this cycle where the story of Cain and Abel keep playing itself over and over again. And if you've been with us, if not, if you read Genesis 4, um, Uh, Eve becomes pregnant and she gives birth to a a, a boy and she names him Cain saying, I have gotten a son from, I've gotten a a man from the Lord. So she names him Cain. The word Cain sounds like the word gotten. And there's irony in naming of that because he becomes the one who goes and takes. (laughs) And then she has another child, Abel, whose name she never uh, translates, Abel we never hear about. Abel simply does good and Cain Instead of seeing him and following his example, resents him, so he kills him. Cain envies Abel, and so instead of aspiring to be like him, he aspires to tear him down. And we have the, the foundations of oppressive oppression. One takes hold of power, and the other has the tears as his life wastes away. No name described, no words. Only God can hear him as God shows up and says, the blood of Abel has cried out. And so I'm I'm, I'm going through this story again um, because verse four, then I saw all toil and skill come from a man's envy of his neighbor. The word envy in Hebrew is kinnah. It's the word Cain. Um, Eve names his son Cain, and this is a a cognate word. Now there's no hidden um, message here. There's no code. It's not some secret. I'm, I'm not saying the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to, uh, in his mind, um, tell us something secret about the story of Cain and Abel. I'm saying the very thing that troubles him is the echoes of society that have played itself out in exactly the same pattern of Cain and Abel. And so he says all toil and skill comes from man's Cain, <laughs> man being a taker, an envier, somebody who tears down. This also is vanity. And what we've already said is the word vanity in Ecclesiastes is the word hevel, uh, it's, it's absurdity, the mist. That's the name Abel. In this one verse, all skill comes from Cain. And this makes humanity like Abel. Again, that's not what the writer of Ecclesiastes may have intended to say. But you take the story and you take the troubles of Koheleth, and he finds himself saying, all I see is people like Cain rising to power. And all I see is good people being cut down and silenced. And it makes me wish that I'd never lived this miserable life. And so you follow the story of Genesis four and five, and there's two genealogies. There's no genealogy for Abel. The good man was cut off, but there's a genealogy for Cain. And what's interesting is, is all of the skill and ability that Cain has, um, his descendants find that they found cities and culture and civilization and, and you could read about how they do, uh, there's technology and there's arts and there's all of these things in Cain's descendants. And so, so Cain's drivenness, his descendants' drivenness leads to, to growth, but woven into it is envy. And so at the end of the genealogy, as you go through Genesis 4, we meet a man named Lamech. And Lamech is now showing he's going to have more power than even the others before him. He's going to be the king of kings. And he says, you thought Cain's vengeance was sevenfold. Well, Lamech, as he boasts to his two wives, will be seven times 70, infinite. You know, it will be enormous. Uh, What happens with Cain's lineage? Uh, That envy, that resentment works itself out on a scale that society builds driven by that. We have no genealogy for Abel, but there's another person, Seth, who's, who's named Seth because it means appointed. So God appoints somebody for a different plan. And then you read Genesis 5, and we have the genealogy of Seth. And the interesting thing is, this is one of the confusing things about reading the Bible, is we meet another man named Lamech. And that's what's confusing, uh, because these are our weird names. There's two different Lamechs. There's the Lamech in the line of Cain, who says, my vengeance will be seven times 70. And then there's the Lamech in the line of Seth, who, in his weariness, names his son Noah, a name which means rest. And he names in that, he says, because maybe the Lord will give us rest from our toil. And that's the thing. God has appointed a plan, (laughs) a different line. And the book of Genesis follows that line. Seth, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way down of these people who are wearied in the world, trying to do good. And they get caught up in their own envy uh, and their own troubles. And the story of Cain and Abel uh, play itself out even there. But then you get to a prophet like Isaiah. Um, who says, because of this, God is going to do something. And, And at first he's going to hand people over to their own foolishness. But then Isaiah 40 marks this new phase, comfort my people. And then Isaiah 40 begins a section of Isaiah where he announces one day a servant will come and he will bring comfort by being the suffering servant who will suffer himself. And we know that this is Jesus Um, And so where the story plays out, let's go right to the end of of Mark's gospel. Mark 15, you could actually read the very parallel story in Matthew 27. Here you have Jesus who comes and he announces that he's the one that fulfills the vision of Isaiah. And he shows God's comfort by by healing the sick and casting out demons and coming among the poor and announcing good news. And and you read through the gospels and, and there are these comments like people marveled at his authority, because he was not like the scribes and the Pharisees. They're seeing something authentic. They're seeing something real. They're seeing something that was, was prophesied. And, and we're supposed to read the Gospels where Jesus is presented as greater than anyone who's ever lived. And we're supposed to read them and, and say, thank you, Lord, for providing something so great and wonderful. And yet all four Gospels lead to that person's rejection. And here in Mark fifteen nine, uh, here's an incident where where this is about his trial before Pilate. Pilate answered the crowd saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him up to be crucified. That envious craving, what is the only way to satisfy it? Well, you got to give into it. (laughs) These people are going to go crazy if Jesus is vindicated for being innocent, even though it's obvious to me. And so if one person has to die so that these resentful people who have envied him don't allow their envy to overwhelm this angry crowd, well, then let that happen. And we find that God had appointed one last injustice. Um, The one who who promises to bring comfort is the one whose comfort was taken from him. The injustice that because he was envied, he was crucified. And it's that story, um, there was no one to comfort the oppressed. And that's not true. Jesus comes and says, I will comfort you because you're not alienated and alone, but I will come in your midst. But, but to bring you comfort, I'm going to give up my own. And that's the gospel story. In verse 10, woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. And that woe was cast upon Jesus. That as he was falling under this injustice, His own friends, his followers were powerless on their side. They had tears. They watched and wept, but the others lifted him up, not out of care, but they, they put him on a cross to humiliate him. His being lifted up was not meant to dignify, but to humiliate. And this is woe to him who's alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. What we're told in the gospel story is Jesus went alone. He had nobody to lift him up, but he had a lot of people to lift him up to humiliate him. What we're told is that's what he did for us. Jesus did that so that we would not be alone when we fall. Jesus did that so we would not be uncomforted in our tears. And what we're told is Jesus comes into the misery of this world, a misery that Koheleth wanted to escape from. I'd rather not exist. Jesus, who is the author of existence, comes in in order to redeem and restore it. And that changes things. We're stronger. Um, And so as we think about our own envy, the way that we deal with it is not to to give up our desires, the way we deal with it is to realize that there are are better things to desire. We don't have to be alone and alienated from God. So our only alternative is to want what people want, but, but we can be reconciled to God. So as we start to want what God wants, then we actually not only can love God, but we could love our neighbor. And it's that comfort that we need to say in this dissatisfying world, there will be no end to what I could fill my hands with, but the end will never be comfort and satisfaction but what god says but if you you trust jesus then win or lose in this world you won't be alone there's one who will lift you up when you fall you don't have to worry about humiliation others can't cast you down you'll prevail and therefore when you have the love of christ and the promise and hope of jesus um, all of a sudden envy loses its grip because you're you realize there's something better to want right now you want what others want jesus says want what i want (laughs) and then go into the world and, and, and live with others. I, I read an essay of a woman who, who had, had an insight to her own envy. So I'm, I'm going to read um, just a paragraph from the essay that I thought was quite insightful. She says, one of the sadder truths I've learned about myself is that I often confuse envying someone for disliking them. It's something I've done since childhood. There was a girl in my grade school class that I disliked for the longest time. Everything she did irked me. Every success she enjoyed inflamed my covetous anger. But as soon as I got a window into her suffering, and as soon as I saw some of the imperfections in her life, I found it much easier to like her. And that's when I realized I'd never really disliked her. I'd simply been jealous of and resented her for the flawless life I thought she was living. I'd allowed her apparent perfection to fuel my own insecurities. But once I saw the true sum of her experiences... I could let her have it all without envy. Um, She learned how to reduce her envy. She realized, don't envy anyone. Everyone has gifts in their lives and good and everyone has struggles. If all you see is people's gifts and your own struggles, you'll dislike others. She said, I thought that I disliked others and I realized I didn't. Much deeper down, I envied. And she needed to bring that out before she can actually like others. Um, we have to recognize the pervasiveness of envy, that a lot of our resentments, a lot of our bitterness, a lot of our problems of being alienated from people and from God. And, and a lot of our turmoil is because the roots are still there. And you don't get them out simply by realizing the damage or by, by talking yourself out of envying others. But, but you, you get rid of it by taking hold of the only thing that will satisfy you. And that's what Jesus says, is if you have two hands full of toil, <laughs> empty one hand immediately and and receive what I will offer you. And when you have that, even as we struggle with our own envy, because we will, we could remove the roots by saying, but Lord, I, I, will, I will find comfort in you. I will be satisfied. I will trust. I will live by faith by sight that the person who seems perfect is not. And the life that I live that seems so imperfect is not so imperfect. And it's only by faith in Christ that that will be fulfilled because he's the one who, who suffered for us. And he's the one who will lift us up when we fall and he's the one who will warm us when we're cold and he's the one who will join us so that evil will not prevail against us. And so I want to encourage you to look to Jesus more than you look to other people, more than you find, what are my own inherent and natural desires? You don't have inherent natural desires. Look to Jesus, find out what he loves and commit to loving that and you'll find renewed desires. But the last thing I want to say is as a church, as a community, um, we need to help one another in this and we need to create a culture where Christ is preeminent because any other greatness will always rub us the wrong way. But the greatness of Christ always pulls us in and helps us aspire to better greatness. So if we're a Christ centered church, that says we will always put the greatness of Jesus before one another, we're helping each other with our envy. And then where the honesty is, we still envy one another. Um, If we pray for one another and encourage one another, we're a community that prepares us to live in a city like New York, where everyone is caught up and driven by toil that doesn't satisfy. And we can be working on our own satisfaction so we could go out into the world and love our neighbors instead of resenting them. This is not easy, but, but we can do it if together God is in our midst. And God is because he came to be with us. And so if he's with us, we'll prevail. And so don't, don't be overwhelmed by envy this week. Uh, Overwhelm yourself with the grace of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we don't even know what it is we want because we want such confusing things. We're dissatisfied. We're resentful. We're filled with bitterness. And yet you offer us good things. You announce good news. You promise us life. You yourself suffered for us. There's no greater love. And so, Lord, if you've loved us this way, why would we feel that our lives are lacking? And so, Lord, it's a lack of faith. It's confusion. It's the effects of sin in our lives. And so cleanse us and forgive us. Renew our hearts and our minds so that we would see with clarity the goodness of the good news. Help us to see the greatness of Jesus, that we would be drawn towards him and that his greatness would be in us and that we would be sufficiently satisfied in this oppressive world where there are tears. And, Lord, we bring our tears to you and we We want you to help us come alongside those who are tearful, and we want any power that you entrust to us not to be something we seize more of, but that we steward, not in envy, uh, but with the wisdom and grace that you steward your power so that others are built up. Thank you that we're not alone. Thank you that you lift us up rather than humiliating us. Thank you that Jesus was humiliated so that we can be lifted up. Uh, Do a work of grace in our lives and in our church, we pray in his name. Amen.